My name is Mark Vicente. I'm a director, producer, writer, and troublemaker. I'm not totally certain if the trouble finds me or I find it. I'm most known as the director of the film What the Bleep Do We Know, and as one of the Nixium whistleblowers featured in the HBO series The Vow. Let's just say I know a thing or two about cults. I don't consider myself a cult expert, but I'm definitely an expert in being screwed over, waking up, and knowing how to spot them. And let me tell you, they're everywhere. As you'll hear, I have a pretty salty approach to most things, and I'm utterly fascinated by the patterns in human behavior that create the best and the worst in society. I'm part geek, part rebel, and pissed off about a whole bunch of things. Join me as I unpack a whole range of topics to do with psychology, spirituality, consciousness, morality, cults, narcissistic abuse, science, filmmaking, and philosophy. You never quite know what you're gonna get, as it really does depend on what the fuck is on my mind. Well, hello everybody. Uh, I'm currently in Los Angeles. I've been shooting here for about a week so far. I have a few more weeks to go. I thought I'd take a quick moment on Sunday to record another podcast. I have a bunch of things I kind of want to rant about today. The first thing is airports. Now, there's a bunch to rant about, of course. But have you guys ever noticed that in airports, the price of stuff beyond security is so much more expensive? And I keep thinking to myself, like, how is that okay? Like, how is the bottle of water that costs, like, I don't know, a dollar or maybe two dollars now costing like six dollars or more once you get past security? And I'm sort of wondering, like, what is this magical property that occurs in terms of financing this, this weird wall beyond security that suddenly everything is more expensive? And of course, we know what the weird wall is. It's, it's frankly, it's greed. And the thing that, that kind of got to me was like, we keep going through this as we go through airports. We pay much more for stuff inside. And the problem is we are forbidden from taking our stuff through. And you could say, well, it's to protect us. But I guess the question is, is it really to protect us? And here's the reason I'm, I'm saying that. Back in the day when I was still in the cult, I would fly on the Bronfman jet to all kinds of places. And one of the things I noticed was that when you flew private to different countries, nothing was ever checked, ever. We were never checked. So basically, you can pretty much take anything anywhere, which gets me back to TSA and the equivalent. What's the point? Like, is it a game? Is it really doing something? I know I'm on a rant. But the thing I keep thinking about is like, you're forbidden from taking your stuff, and you are now forced, if you want water, to pay a lot more. How is this good? Like, how is this cool? Anyway, that's one rant. Speaking of police, have you guys ever heard the term the ethics police? I think there's a number of cults that have sort of the ethics police. In Nixium, we had a group of people in the communications department. They weren't called the ethics police, but everybody called them. We called them the ethics police because they were the people that were basically monitoring everything we did. 
So any, you know, slip up you made in terms of some ethical indiscretion was pointed out by them. And what they did is they scoured, um, they scoured social media to see if there was anything untoward there. And in 2017, when I was beginning to wake up, I remember being with a group of people, some of who had already left, and I was beginning to look unravel, and they were beginning to help me understand certain things. And a photograph was taken and posted on Facebook and I think Instagram. That night, I got a call from somebody, I won't mention their name, but they were basically the ethics police. And what was so sad was this person had just had a death in the family, I think the day before. So they were completely grief-stricken. And the thing that saddened me so much when they called me, because when they called me, I knew why they were calling. They were calling to point out that I had, you know, been in this photograph. And they gave me the usual thing, and they said, you know, do you know what it, you know, you, you understand what it means to be in a picture with those people, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought to myself, how sad is it that this person is being sent to chastise me for just living while they're in this terrible, terrible experience of grief from a death in the family. And that was, you know, one of many experiences with the ethics police. Now, why do I bring that up? I'm beginning to, to sense on social media that there, there's sort of the self-appointed ethics police that's going on, where let's say I like a post because I like the sentiment of the post. Maybe I don't know a lot about the person. And the next thing that happens is there's this like gangbang on social media of like, I can't believe you like that picture. You're a this, you're a that, like all this name calling that goes on. And I'm beginning to get a sense that like people, I don't know, maybe they're well-meaning, I'm not sure, are, are behaving like ethics police. Their job, they feel, is to police what everybody likes and doesn't like. And maybe they're too young to, to, or too inexperienced to have studied what happened in the Soviet Union in communist countries, but this is what happened in communist countries. I find that there's a group of people that seem to be monitoring very, very carefully every single thing I say or do, and if there's any innuendo that could suggest I'm this or I'm that or I'm whatever, there's all these names, there's all these buckets that they want to maybe put me into. And it's weird because some of the people that are doing this ethics policing are people that have left other cults. And I think now they think they're going to police everybody because now that they're out of their cult or have been out for some time, they know the way. And what I think they may not understand or may not recognize in that moment, that's exactly the mindset in a cult. So they're out there policing everybody to make sure that nobody does anything culty at all. And they're behaving pretty badly. I mean, they're pretty mean to a whole bunch of people. And there's a, there's a few people, you know, that have escaped cults that are beginning to notice this kind of behavior. And it's really shitty. And what's sad is that the thing that happens in a cult is you are not free inside. And once you get out, you want to have the freedom to express, to explore, to like something or not like something and figure out what you do and don't like. So it's weird that people that have um, appointed themselves cult experts 
are now going to shame you if you explore something, if you like something, if you don't like something, who you might be affiliated with. And I, I think they fail to see they're falling into the very same trap. So I find it very disturbing, um, not only amongst the, the sort of cult experts, but also just generally on social media, the kind of policing that's going on. It is like ethics policing, except it's not ethics at all. It's basically they seem to not be able to handle somebody exploring anything differently. And the thing that's weird is that's the very thing they hated about the cult or they hated about religion, and now they're doing exactly the same thing. So something else I wanted to have a mini rant about. I'm, there's a lot more coming on the subject, by the way. Um, the other thing I was thinking about is the inability of people to truly acknowledge evil. And I, and I had some thoughts I wrote here. Um, here's an example. When in 2017, a number of us discovered that Ranieri by proxy was branding his initials on uh, women's bodies, we told people as we were waking up, we told people that this is what he was doing. And this is what was being done to the woman. And a bunch of women were doing it to each other. And we were met with like scoffs. Like that is ridiculous. That is not possible at all. And it was so interesting. We couldn't at first get people to believe this was possible unless, you know, Sarah showed her brand. And then they were like, oh, shit. And even then people were like, well, you know, you could have done that. You could have faked that. You could have done this, that, the other. And so it always has fascinated me ever since then that... If you say somebody XYZ person is doing something evil, if it seems really, really out of the, 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 the bounds of what they can imagine, they just can't take it in. It's like not possible. And I started to think to myself, you know, that's why really evil people can do things in plain sight right in front of people because most people will not believe it's possible. They just can't fathom that this person could really do that. So they can't imagine the act and they can't imagine the pathology or the mindset of the person doing it because they don't think that way, but they cannot allow the possibility that it exists. And I think this is why people with these malignant pathologies can get away with a lot because they know this. They know this limitation in most normal empathic people. So they can do some seriously weird and wacky shit and most people will not believe it. In fact, I notice if something gets announced, you know, on the news or some publication, people just scoff at it and go, oh, that's bullshit. That's complete bullshit because they could never imagine doing that. And yet maybe it's true. We don't know. Um, some of these things have turned out to be true. And it's interesting that the shift that goes on for people who said that's just crazy shit, that's crazy talk. And finally it comes out like in the mainstream press and people are like, oh my God, that's unbelievable. And these people know this. They, that's why they can do some really insane shit. So it gets me to something that happened in 2009, uh, maybe 2008, 2009 in Albany. One of the things I'd mentioned before was that Ranieri was trying to figure out ways to place people in powerful places. And he wanted to infiltrate government, you know, the legal system, uh, the entertainment system, you know, that kind of thing. And so he came up with um, this brainchild called the WEFC, the World 
World Ethical Foundation Consortium. And so it was his brainchild, which was spearheaded by um, Sarah Bronfman and, and Claire Bronfman to some extent. And the idea was... Uh, in 2009, to invite all these like famous people and dignitaries and powerful people to this inaugural event that the Dalai Lama was supposed to come to. Um, it went a little south. Let me just first read you what, what it was. So this was the write-up that I think that uh, Ranieri and Sarah Bronfman came up with. The World Ethical this is a long one. The World Ethical Foundations Consortium, I could never say it properly, WEFC, like all living organisms, communities must have basic components or, one could say, branches in order to exist. Ultimately, the balance and health of each branch determines if a community is to merely survive or, in the best of worlds, to thrive. We believe truly interdependent civilized communities are nonviolent and utilize compassionate ethical methods and solutions to address their different problems or conflicts. Our mission is to develop such communities. The World Ethical Foundations Consortium, WEFC, is a highly directed nonprofit initiative promoting the understanding and application of compassionate ethics in the world community. Our distinguished members are individuals demonstrating a high degree of ethics and a commitment to humanity, compassionate ethics, and an expertise in at least one community branch. We provide these individuals with a unique ethical tool set enabling each to resolve ethical questions and achieve a deeper understanding of the nature of compassionate ethics. With this understanding, a person can come to experience compassionate ethics more fully and in turn apply it in all decisions. In this way, WEFC experts are able to examine any issue in the world, understand the nature of the fear underlying the issue, and create innovative paths to resolve the issue through compassion. The World Ethical Foundations Consortium, a groundbreaking event to take place in the New York Capital City region, February 3rd to the 6th, 2009, will be the initiative's first formal gathering. And the idea was to attract and incorporate powerful figures in governments, arts, sciences, etc., people that would adopt the ideology of the WEFC. Now, what was the ideology? Well, on the surface, the ideology was all these beautiful things compassion, ethics, humanity. But what it was, in the end, was Ranieri's way of trying to um, infiltrate powerful institutions and use the tech on them. And you've heard about other organizations doing this as well. So the cover of the thing was this very beautiful ideal. But what was actually going on all this time, so remember 2009, a lot of shit had already happened which came out in court that was what he was really doing all along and the idea that somebody could create a you know a non-profit a charity a whatever um and actually be doing nefarious things is something that i think a lot of people struggle with it's like they can't believe it's possible. How is it possible that some grand, beautiful, you know, NGO, nonprofit, whatever it is, could actually have at its core a bunch of rotten things? And and the, and the reason as well is because a lot of really good people get attracted to these things, um, as was the case here. Now, the WEFC was the first meeting uh, didn't work out so well because the Dalai Lama canceled the trip because um, he had heard all these allegations. And then, as you see in the vow, there was a trip that um, myself and Ranieri and Nancy Salzman and Sarah Bronfman took to um, Dharamsala. 
and apparently that cha- that changed the da- the Dalai Lama's mind. Um, and apparently there was an exchange of a million dollars, so maybe that helped as well. And then he eventually came. But the thing that that I keep on thinking about with the WEFC is it's a great metaphor for maybe these uh, mega organizations that seem so good. And it's possible that there might be nefarious things going on underneath. But here's the thing. Because of this blindness that people have to nefarious things, especially outrageous nefarious things, like and I, the idea that somebody could create something wonderful in the world in the end to control people, to many seems impossible. And that's how they get away with it. You know, there are, as you probably well know, there are, are, are mega corporations that say they're doing all kinds of good things for the environment, whatever, and they're doing horrible things, and that stuff comes out. But I keep thinking about how these people get away with it, because what they do is they coat whatever they're doing in goodness. They, they dress it up, and they coat it with all the stuff we want to hear. Like most people that have, you know, empathy and compassion want the world to be a better place, and they would like to be part of that solution. And so what Ranieri did as well in this case, he he was trying to get all these people to come together, and he really was trying to infiltrate, you know, the arts, uh, the legal system, government, all kinds of things, because what he wanted to do was he wanted his tech in there, and we all thought, well, that's not a bad idea, because the tech you know, helps you resolve inconsistencies and fears and different things and angers and all the, all the things that we have as human beings that cause us to do awful things. So this is a great idea. You know, so people were out there proselytizing about like how incredible this was. And, and, and each person was assigned, especially in the upper ranks, was assigned to go out and find people to bring them to this inaugural event. Um, I look back at it now with, you know, a lot of shame, frankly, like I, I wish I had understood at that point, and I didn't. And what was interesting is the Nixium 9 that had left earlier were at the, the second inaugural event that the Dalai Lama actually came to, and they were trying to speak out. But at that point, we were all so deeply in this bubble, and they had all been so vilified that we just couldn't hear what they were saying. And the usual stuff Ranieri was doing, you know, saying they were disgruntled, this and that, they were, they were stealing things, they, you know, they were criminals, none of which was true. Um, but anyway, it got me thinking about the, the WEFC. Um, I, I have some more documents somewhere I can read at some point, but it was a really fascinating time in, in the sort of Nixium history and, and also the way that the Dalai Lama refused to come and then how that suddenly changed, I think, was also really interesting. So that's some of what's been on my mind in the last few weeks. Um, there's a bunch more coming. I just don't know when, of course, because I'm shooting um, every single week at the moment. We are currently working on Empathy Not Included. Um, we will be finishing principal photography, I think, maybe in the next month. We'll be done, and then we'll be sort of pretty much living in the editing room. So there is more to come. We will talk soon.